This is Startup Life Hacks, episode 23. Entrepreneurship to me is about looking at things in new ways and creating value out of stuff that's already there, right? It's just putting it together in a new way and finding something of value in it. That's kind of where High Tech Adventures came from. Welcome. Welcome to Startup Life Hacks. Ever wondered if you have what it takes to start a business? Join us as we share with you inspiring stories from these amazing entrepreneurs. Let their journeys bring you one step closer to achieving success. And now, here's your host, Romel Cabal. What up, Hacker Nation? This is Romel Cabal, and welcome to Startup Life Hacks, the show where I interview startup founders and entrepreneurs to give you the extra boost to start something amazing. Now, this is a special episode since the guest I have for you played a huge role in the beginnings of my entrepreneur career. It was my junior year in college, and I entered in a business plan competition. Since I was an engineering student, I had little knowledge in the business side. So what was the best decision to do at this time? Seek a mentor. So that's when I reached out to our guest, Ken Arnold, an engineering professor at SDSU. Through his guidance, our team was able to reach the finals and even took third place. Ken has some really cool projects he's working on, including a program in school that helps students get jobs. So please welcome to the mic, Professor Ken Arnold. Ken, before we get into what you're currently working on, Please give a brief background in your life and how you started as an entrepreneur. What made you perfect for what you're doing right now? Well, I'm certainly not perfect for what I'm doing, but I have a good time. I tell the students I get paid to have fun doing stuff I do for free anyway. Um, I would say when I was young and I first was thinking about what I wanted to do, uh, you have to be careful not to let people discourage you because, for instance, my I forget which, uh, maybe 10th grade algebra teacher told me I better not go into science, engineering, or math because I didn't do very well in algebra. And my high school counselor told me the same thing. And then I got out. I went to work for Mauser Corporation, which is an electronics distributor. And the founder of the company, Jerry Mauser, gave me my pink slip on the day he fired me and said, Ken, you better find something else to do because you're not going to make it in electronics. So uh, my family also was pretty supportive, but a lot of other people at the time uh, a lot of engineers were getting laid off. It wasn't a good time for people being an engineer. And people were saying, you know, why on earth do you want to be an engineer? And my dad gave me really good advice. He said, look, if you're good at what you do and you get to the point where you enjoy it, um, you'll either find a job or make one for yourself. And I'd already had some entrepreneurial tendencies anyway, well, getting myself through school, hiring some of my friends who couldn't get jobs. We did some simple, you know, basic electronic contracting kind of work. And that got me into the entrepreneurial bug, and it was all over after that. I, I liked technology. I liked entrepreneurship. Um, it was just a matter of time. I was doomed to have to start my own business and get involved in some technology business. So it was bound to happen. So when you hired your, your friends as a, as a consultant, were they charging you? or? Oh, well, yeah. When I first did it, it was actually a piecework basis. Um, we were kitting up components uh, at the time. Uh, the best jobs we could get were, you know, flipping burgers in a fast food place or something and really poor wages. I was think it was a buck 65 an hour minimum wage at the time. And um, we were able to 
get efficient at what we did and I paid them on a per piece basis because I was getting paid on a per piece basis. They were making like four bucks an hour when everybody else was making one or two and I was making like 20 bucks an hour. Wow, that was great, you know, for, for me as a student, especially in those days when, you know, wages were low. Even now it's good. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's kind of still the same way. I mean, if you can find something that's unique that somebody's willing to pay for and you can motivate people, which in my case was these people getting paid on a per piece basis, um, they figured out efficient ways to do things and became very productive. Wow, so you really bootstrap it and not even use your own money. That's right. I managed to start that while I was still in school, and that paid for a good percentage of my school costs. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know how important it is to have a mentor, especially when you're starting out a business. Someone who has been there or who is at the position where you want to be at right now. Who is it that you admired or looked up to? There were several people. One, one was a businessman who took me under his wing and acted as a mentor, and I asked him a lot of questions about how do I get started? You know, how do I fall? You know, what are the traps that I could fall in and how do I avoid them? Um, and my brother-in-law was actually also a really good role model. He's about uh, 12 years older than me. He's uh, retired now, but he was a very good role model. Was a SDSU alum also, got his business degree here. Um, and so from the business side, he was helpful. And then I had um, one of the first employers that I had was a really good role model and mentor. He was actually one of the professors here. Um, he ended up being my boss in my first real job in the electronics industry. <laughs> now, this is a pretty common theme in entrepreneurship. It's hard to get some time off for yourself as an entrepreneur when you're constantly learning new skills and essentially becoming a sponge. But it's imperative that you set time for yourself to kind of reset your day. With that being said, what are a few favorite hobbies? Hmm, I don't know. I kind of do my hobbies for my work, but uh, uh, I guess just sort of reading about technology and keeping up on the technology is sort of a hobby of mine. Not necessarily the stuff that I work on or that I teach, but related things, right? So like biotech, um, you know, genetic engineering are kind of interesting to me. There's a, I don't know if you're familiar with the Fab Lab, but they have a wet lab there. That's kind of an interesting area I'd like to be able to spend more time on. A wet lab. Tell, tell me more about the wet lab. So Fab Lab is spin out from MIT Bits and Atoms is a place where people can go and they have 3D printers and laser cutters and all kinds of stuff. They just recently started up the wet lab, which is build your own algae or whatever, right? And instead of just being like electronics and you know technology-based gizmos in that sense, they're working on uh, sort of homemade maker-style biotech. So that's an interesting area. But that I wouldn't call it a hobby yet, but it's an area where if I had, when and if I had more time, I'd probably go spend on time on it. <laughs> awesome. Now we are now going to concentrate on how all of this got started. And maybe some of my listeners can use the same tactics when moving forward to start their own businesses. So what strategies did you use to fund your first business and what strategies would you recommend now? Well, let's see. Uh, my real first business wasn't formed with any strategy because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but when I got the help from the mentor and I started, it was High Tech Equipment Corporation, uh, which was a, a business uh, initially selling products and services. Uh, I think the, the strategy pretty much was it had to be something that I could do during my full-time job and bootstrap without much external capital. So I'm, I'm a major fan of bootstrap capital. I've looked at multiple times getting external capital to grow fast, but the basic difference has to do with what your goals are as to what's best for you. If you 
if you go with the uh, sort of traditional VC model of uh, find somebody to back you, you know, their their mode is pretty much, you know, get rich quick or die fast. Um, you you either have to give them a return like 30 or 100x return within two or three years, or they shut you down because they're not interested. Um, it's it's vitally important, and I wish I'd seen sooner. Uh, so-called term sheet. Are you, you know what a term sheet is for when investors invest in a company? Oh no, can you like me on it? Okay, so a term sheet is basically the legal contract that uh, investors like angels and VCs give to startup entrepreneur types, right? So the founders typically have to sign these contracts and in many cases they're pretty onerous um, as a result of the contracts. Uh, in one case, for instance, uh, one of the guys I know that's a mechanical engineer, um, they uh, wrote the deal in such a way that they invested in his company, uh, got to a certain point, uh, decided that they they didn't want him in anymore. So while he was gone on a two-week vacation, they basically diluted his shares to worthlessness and fired him. And when he came back from his two-week vacation, he had no job and he had a tiny, tiny fraction of the company. Oh, wow. Um, and, and this happens, right? It's part of the part of the things you have to be careful of. And part of it is in how that um, term sheet is written. All investors have term sheets. Uh, it's important to know what's going on there. Unfortunately, I had an advisor, uh, but anybody who does take in external money has to realize, hey, that comes with big strings. And I looked at that and I kind of, and I'd seen other companies kind of go through that process and the, and the founder get hosed. <laughs> and uh, I also noticed that an awful lot of time got spent sort of justifying their existence and trying to sell the investors and, and prop up the reason why the investors should stay engaged and they spent so much time doing non-productive things in my opinion that that was part of the reason why i decided to go bootstrap because you know i might not have much in the way of resources but what little i had at least it was my deal and i didn't have to essentially answer to anybody except success or failure yeah and you're more engaged within your company versus trying to impress all these investors exactly i i there were some people i, I mean there was one guy i saw he managed to convince the same investors multiple years in a row that the next year was going to be the big thing and they should invest a bunch of money and of course it all went to nothing anyway but uh, he was really effective at raising money but he wasn't very effective at running the company and actually getting anything done so you know just being good at raising money is not enough <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand just being good isn't enough if you can't either find a way to self-finance and grow or you have to go with the approach of other people's money right? mm -hmm. Now, as a student entrepreneur, it's a tough decision to make that leap into entrepreneurship, especially when there's other options out there upon graduation, such as a job with a big company. Did you have this problem when you made that leap? Well, recognize that in my case, I jumped to a nice, secure job first. And so I was working from, uh, let's see, so for about seven, eight years, I was in the job market, uh, working for a small part of a large company that was growing. So I kind of benefited from the one-eyed man in the valley of the blind effect in the sense that I wasn't great, but compared to everybody else, you know, hey, I look better. So I got promoted from uh, engineering, uh, associate engineer, that's it, up to engineering chief in this large organization. And when I made the jump, I had a house, you know, mortgage, kid, you know, family. Uh, so then it was still the same thing of, 
I had to decide whether it was worth leaving a nice, what seemed at the time, like really secure, stable job with a good income and jump off into the unknown, not knowing whether I'd be able to really support myself and my family and, and all those sorts of things. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a difficult situation in the sense that whatever you have is a known and jumping off and starting your own business, you just don't know until you do it. And even though I'd done some consulting and we'd done some product development stuff in advance, we didn't really know until we started. So maybe like an advice to our listeners, like if you're considering entrepreneurship, maybe intern at a startup to see how it is working at a startup to see if this is what you wanted to do. Yeah, I would say before you start your own company, it's worthwhile to work, at least have some time at a small firm and some time at a big firm. Because I worked at both small firms and big firms. And my mentor actually advised me, hey, you know, it's nice to work at a little firm, but you don't get to know many people. You only have a small circle of acquaintances from working at a small place. He suggested, well, you know, go work for a bigger place. Well, I picked the biggest place in town and went to work there. And it was actually one of the ways in which I got my name out, right? People got to know me. They got to know what I knew. Uh, I leveraged some of the things that I did in school uh, to get the job. Um, I built, basically, I built one of the very first personal computers way before the PC and Apple existed. And that got me you know, a job, which then led to other jobs and got promotions. And working for a small company and a big company meant I kind of saw what a little company was like, which I liked. But I also got the exposure that I got at a much bigger company. No, that's really interesting because that's kind of like something similar that I started doing. Um, at first, I wasn't able to get any internships to all these large companies because I didn't have any experience. Mm -hmm. And in order to get that you know, entry-level job, you need to have experience. But I had no experience to kind of show myself. And so I, I interned, or they didn't even have an internship at the time. But I ended up becoming employee number one at the, the startup Robo3D, as many of my listeners know. And after that, I slowly transitioned over to Qualcomm. And that's where I currently work right now while starting this uh, podcast. So I think that's a good way to get started, honestly, because one of the problems that I've seen with entrepreneurs is we're almost always undercapitalized, right? Unless, you know, we've got an incredibly rich uncle that's very generous or something. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you have the benefits then of the large corporate kind of pay the grocery bill and keep turn the key in the door every night. Um, combined with the experience of a small outfit where you learn how much different things are in a small environment when you don't have deep pockets and you have to you have to wear all the hats in the company. <laughs> exactly. Now, you probably had many of these, but describe one moment in your business when you felt like giving up. What was it that kept you inspired and to keep trying? Well, I think there were a bunch of those moments. Um, probably one of the biggest ones was when uh, I had just jumped off, started the business, um, the large company that I worked for had a health plan. My son had become very ill when he was born, substantial hospital bills. Turns out there was, I didn't know this at the time, there was a limit on how much they paid out. And so all of a sudden the hospital gave the money back to the insurance company. The insurance company said, we're not covering over the limit. And Ken, you got to come up with the tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> to pay the rest of the hospital bill for my kid. And that was like, oh, that was the money I was going to use for advertising and no, 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 all the other expenses that I expected I was going to spend money on. So that was a take a left turn. I, I literally sort of stopped what I was doing, went, found a, a job working for a, a firm, uh, which actually turned out to be another good opportunity. Um, went to work for them for a while until an, 
my next big consulting gig came up and so that held me over so i would say one of the things you have to do is just be flexible <laughs> right sometimes things go sideways that was a painful moment uh, i didn't have any choice and it wasn't expected probably uh, there's no way i could have known really that it was going to happen until boom the bill showed up so yeah i <laughs> i would say flexibility adaptability that's successful entrepreneurs are adaptable right someone comes and blindsides you, you you find a way around it that's what makes an entrepreneur what they are and successful versus people who want to work in a as a small cog in a big machine where they don't have to worry about stuff like that. Yeah, and I really like how you had your priorities straight uh, when you're thinking about this decision. I mean, you have your family first, and so you had that to take care of. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a vital thing. Um, some people have kind of lost track of the fact that um, you, you have to have priorities. They have to be consistent with the people you're with, and that's you know like getting into business. Like my first business partner and I, recognizing that it's more of a commitment than getting married to somebody because you're going to spend a minimum of 40 hours a week with this person. You better get along. You better be good to have complementary skills if you're going to bring in a partner early on. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, you got to have the right parties. You got to have consistent priorities. What's our exit strategy, right? How are we going to, what are we going to say yes? And what are we going to say no to those things you have to be consistent on? So it's a lot, it's like getting married only worse because in a way it's a bigger commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what's a great success you've had as an entrepreneur? Um, I would say probably my favorite success, maybe not in terms of monetary, is the high-tech adventures thing because it's something that I feel uh, ad addresses a direct need and solves a problem that so many of my students have had, which is simply good students not being able to get jobs because they couldn't even get an interview because they didn't have any paid experience to put on their resume right and so many students had that problem um, I, f I feel proud of being able to start that because now that it's been running for a while uh, I've had a, a lot of positive feedback none of the people who've been involved in high-tech adventures have called me back later to say hey Ken I hadn't got a job I haven't got an interview all of the people that since this has started that have called back and said hey you know I, I'm still looking for a job they're all the ones that were not involved in high-tech adventures. So while that's not a good statistical measure from a practical point of view, it's a really good indicator that it works. And so I feel really happy about that. And, you know, we want to continue doing it. I want to eventually make it self-sustaining so that students will have a way around the fact that, you know, there's a large number of students and a much smaller number of internships. Uh, there just aren't enough internships to go around, basically. Mm -hmm. Now tell me more about High Tech Adventures and where do you see High Tech Adventures five years from now? Well, I'm always reluctant to try and predict the future, but I'll tell you what the goal is. Um, generally, being an entrepreneur, one of the things that people learn to do, especially if you're bootstrapped, uh, I like the euphemism pivot. Uh, <laughs> businesses, well, we pivoted. Oh, we screwed up. And so we had to turn left and do something else because what we were going to do didn't work. Uh, <laughs> And that's, that's going to happen. And I would say, I think High Tech Adventures most likely at some point is going to have to pivot. Um, but on what, I'm not sure exactly. We've, we've uh, the short term uh, good thing about it is that the main goal of getting students direct, practical, hands-on experience has worked. We've done internal projects. We've had contracts with multiple companies that have been pretty successful. The students have learned some things the hard way, like 
you know, we, we've had a couple clients now that just never paid the bill, right? That's a typical problem in consulting. You can get them to pay all the invoices except the last one because on the last invoice, they don't need anything from you. So they just don't pay it. And that's pretty common in consulting. So, you know, that's actually been good experience for the students, though, because, you know, you don't get that out of the normal. I don't think you get that out of any of the standard academic coursework that those kinds of things are consistently uh, an issue for a small one-man band. Now tell me one case, uh, a relationship, like a client-student relationship, where this has worked really well. Okay, so we've had a couple of situations where uh, a client has, if we had a project, student works for the client on the project. Um, it's kind of humorous in a way, because normally with consulting, we actually have an agreement in our consulting that says, thou shalt not hire my, my engineers. Right? <laughs> um, and so there are kind of, that's the normal thing in the industry. And I've had a couple of them come up to me sort of sheepishly saying, well, uh, we, we really, really like to hire that student of yours, but, you know, we don't want to step on any toes. And I have to tell them, look, the whole point of this <laughs> is to give the students jobs. So, no, don't, don't be shy. Yes, we do want you to hire. And, yeah, we've, I, you know, in one case in particular, uh, the student, I'm sure, would not have been connected with the company. The company would never have discovered the student except the fact that he was working on their specific project. And we've had other similar kind of things come up, too, where uh, that that particular student um, was picked up by Qualcomm as a chant. He was one of our, our grad students. And uh, I, I would say that there were several things. He worked on a couple of different projects. Uh, he was able to show his real ability. The client saw that. And as a result, it didn't surprise me at all that they wanted to hire him. So, yeah, he's a really good example. But we've got other ones, too. Sometimes also just getting internships because sometimes the companies that want to hire interns or the organizations, like one of them was NASA, uh, one of our members, uh, she probably wouldn't have gotten the internship offer from NASA if she hadn't already done some work with us because, you know, that basically ended up making the connection that she ended up getting your internship at NASA. So yeah, mm -hmm. even, even the internships, it seems to have helped. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> we are now entering my favorite round, which is the superhero round. I'm a huge fan of superheroes. I mean, we could admire these successful entrepreneurs as superheroes. So what is your entrepreneur superpower? In other words, what is your greatest strength? I'd say that my primary strength is simply that I try to be creative in finding different solutions to problems that people have used the standard solutions for. So, I mean, entrepreneurship to me is about looking at things in new ways and creating value out of stuff that's already there, right? It's just putting it together in a new way and finding something of value in it. That's kind of where High Tech Adventures came from because I sat in on too many meetings where there wasn't enough money and there weren't, students didn't get jobs. And, you know, there was this problem of the the university would go out to industry and say, hey, you know, what do you guys want? And they'd say, well, we're too busy. You know, we can't tell you what we want. But what you're sending us isn't any good. You, we don't like your graduates. you got to fix it. Well, okay, tell us what you want. Well, we don't have time. And at the <laughs> same time, we had students. I had students coming to me saying, you know, hey, I can't, you know, I don't seem to be able to get a job. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, kind of the, 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 the main thing that I've been able to do is come up with unique solutions like the high-tech adventures thing which benefits the students, benefits the industry, and benefits the university because it's a win-win-win for all three. Uh, so that's 
probably my main strength is finding kind of a different way to look at things instead of the purely industry view or the purely academic view or the purely student view. It's kind of merge them together, look and say, hey, you know, we've got an unmet need here. You know, let's morph things in such a way that, ah, you know, look now, these people get what they want. Those people get what they want. Everybody's happy. You know, that's the the sum of the parts is, you know, the result is greater than the sum of its parts kind of situation. Those are the ones I look for. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say is your kryptonite? Uh, bureaucracy, definitely. I have always had to trouble with big companies and big organizations. And uh, the thing that sometimes causes me to really... Grinds your gears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grinds my gears is a really good one. Is when I run into bureaucratic BS that prevents people from doing what needs to be done, whether it's with a big company or whether it's a big university. Large organizations always have this sort of, you know, pointy-haired boss syndrome that you see in Dilbert, right, where they do these really dumb things. And, and you know, it's so common that, you know, he made a living out of that comic strip through things like, yes, uh, the employee ID badges will be distributed on Wednesday, but everybody must show up and present their ID badge on Monday in order to get in. Uh, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And I see it, you know, big universities, big organizations have that all the time. And when I run into that, I frequently, I don't freak out, but I, I frequently lose my uh, cool and don't always act rationally immediately. I have to calm down and say, okay, don't let it tick me off. <laughs> yeah. But inside you're really screaming out loud. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, ah. <laughs> exactly. Now, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Well, I guess if I had any superpower, I would say it would be to uh, inform people widely of really important things that they're not aware of, such as most people have never heard that for every dollar that the California state puts into the CSU and UC system, that it gets approximately $5 back in terms of increased personal income tax uh, and reduced benefit costs like unemployment directly to the state, not including the value that's added by entrepreneurs who create new businesses, new jobs, and additional tax revenues. Just the raw bucks put in by the university or by the state for the university system coming back directly every year to the state. 500% ROI. I don't know what governments do. I don't know of anything else any government does that makes a 500% ROI, but the fact that we've been cutting education funding is an example of why are we doing this? It doesn't make any sense economically, financially. You know, it's one of the few investments government makes that has a positive return, and especially 500% ROI. And related topics, right? The fact that our priorities for education are pretty poorly informed. And if I could somehow get that information magically out to the whole world so that the legislators and the people who are voting knew that, wow, why are we shortchanging our university system it's it's been the one of the major engines of success in the state of california for decades and we've substantially reduced the amount of funding it gets 17 percent of csu system uh, funds come from the state whereas back in the 60s it was 80 percent plus so you know the state basically spends a lot less money um and as a result you know tuitions have gone up hugely um that's cost in a lot of different ways, including students, you know, the fees that students pay and cost us as a, as an economy, fewer startups and fewer, you know, people that 
are paying into you know paying taxes because they're being successful right yeah. as opposed to people who are co collecting unemployment because they can't get a degree or whatever yeah i'll be sure to send this episode out to the state so <laughs> <laughs> yeah really yeah so we're now entering the final questions of the interview and these are the tools that you would recommend that would help our listeners rise to their feet and get started so what is one favorite tool that you use in your business and would recommend to our listeners well, let's see. I guess uh, probably one of my favorite tools is uh, the scheduling and, and sort of organizational tools that are available for free on the web. So, for instance, I'm doing meetings, uh, the Doodle kind of website that lets you get around the problem of multiple phone calls and playing tag, trying to figure out when five people can meet in the same time. Uh, and those kinds of tools. So productivity tools that are available on the web, a lot of them are free. Um, I, I, I can't point to any specific one, but there's that. There's, you know, things like um, Google Hangouts and Skype and other communication tools, um, virtual meetings. The one I use is much less expensive than WebEx, but it's the same kind of thing where basically anything that you can find that is a web-based tool that re reduces the amount of time I have to spend doing you know, that sort of administrative overhead stuff of setting up meetings and driving to meetings and, you know, non-productive time, right? Anything I can do, those those are my favorite tools, right? Because they turn time that I would otherwise waste, in my opinion, uh, into time that I can do something useful with, right? I can actually create something instead of, you know, calling five people and trying to figure out when they can all meet or, you know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier before the interview how you were teaching so many classes and if you spend more than two minutes on each student, then like all the schedule just goes out of whack. Exactly. With, yeah. with 250 students at two minutes each, I now have blown a whole day. So I do a lot of automation tools with the teaching. So I have an automated scheduling system. They can go to youcanbookme.com and they can see my schedule and they can click on it and it automatically makes an appointment. It comes up, shows it in my calendar. Uh, they show up, I show up, you know, I don't have to spend any time. They basically do the the scheduling, uh, the system does the scheduling, and I don't have to spend any time doing that, right? Mm -hmm. so. Now, what is your favorite book? Hmm, um, there are a lot of favorite books, but if I had to pick one, I'd say a, a Whack on the Side of the Head by Roger Von Oak, O-E-C-H. Um, the reason is because that book, probably more than anything else, changed my mind about what it means to come up with creative and innovative solutions. It's not something you're born with, it's something anybody can learn. Uh, the joke of the title, A Whack on the Side of the Head, is kind of the process that he talks about. And I think it's an excellent book for you know, up and coming entrepreneurs because it gets you out of the thinking ruts that you get into because you don't even realize you're in the rut. That he has, a, what is it, a set of cards you can get called the Whack Pack. There's apps equivalent to it. Uh, but I would say of, of the books for entrepreneurship, I'd say that one was probably the most valuable to me because it got me out of the rut that I'd been in thinking of solutions where you, you know, people talk about thinking outside the box. Well, he has a systematic method. It's a very short book. It's humorous, uh, but it's very applicable, I'd say, to all entrepreneurs because you're ultimately going to find yourself in a situation where you have a problem and the standard ways of solving it are just not going to work for whatever reason. And you're going to have to find some creative and different way to solve the problem. And that's the technique I used, for instance, to come up with the idea for high tech adventures. It would not have occurred to me probably if I hadn't used the methods that are described in that book. Mm -hmm. So really finding the methods that are non-conventional that other people would use to, to kind of, you know, find your ideas. 
Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, after going through all these failures, all these successes you had thus far, what is one startup life hack that you've discovered that you can share with our listeners? Hmm. I guess as far as figuring out how to make best use of my time, part of that is a result of a book called, um, well, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it basically uh, was about how to allocate your time and make better use of your time by not getting interrupted. Uh, turns out that, and kind of everybody sort of knows this, that if you're in an environment where you get interrupted a lot, you spend a lot of your time trying to get back to what you were doing. And with engineering, uh, when you're doing, you know, when you're looking at uh, financial data, you're trying to do cash flow projections, whatever. If you get interrupted and you've got something half done, A, it makes errors and it wastes a lot of time getting back to what you were doing. So one of the recommendations they make is find a place where you can work uninterrupted, uninterrupted, and focus and that's actually something that I did do when I wrote my book. Uh, I was having a great deal of trouble making any progress on the dang thing. So uh, I rented a little teeny office, didn't tell anybody, didn't give the phone number to my kids. Nobody knew where I was. <laughs> um, and I went and I went there Tuesdays and Thursdays to, to write my book. Well, what I found out was not only did I get a lot of writing done on the book, but most of my work project tasks got done on Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. So I think that one of the things that, as far as a life hack that you can do is to simply say, hey, make sure that you've got some place, some time that you allocate to doing those things that really require the kind of concentration and focus that you have to have when you have to get certain things done, right? Whether it's dealing with finances or it's a technical problem or you're writing code or you're writing a proposal, you know, you got to have 100% concentration and then your productivity is way higher than if you the phone can ring and somebody can knock on your door. So, you know, I've used libraries, I've used all kinds of other resources just to go hide somewhere. Uh, and even here at the university, I mean, sometimes <laughs> Ken's not in his office. Where is he? Uh, he's in his secret spot, right? Yeah. Because I'm basically hiding out trying to get something done. And your productivity does go way up if you can get yourself in that not interrupted mode where you can think continuously and focus on a specific thing till you get it done. I think that's huge. And the way things are right now, I think it's even more important because there are so many technology widgets like smartphones that are there to interrupt us, but they really kill our productivity. Yeah. I mean, in a funnier sense, um, this is how man caves are born, right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I have one at home too. It's called a travel trailer. Travel trailer. Parked right next to my house. And when I need and I'm at home, I disappear into the trailer and Everybody knows up, oh, Ken, he's in his man cave. You know, don't bother him. <laughs> I got my refrigerator in there. I'm all set, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, give our listeners one extra step that they could do right now to get started. Um, I would say mostly we tend to think about what we could do and not and be reluctant to jump off. And I would say if if you spend too much time thinking about what you could do, and not doing it, you're actually wasting a lot of potential. If you did one thing, you know, find something you can do as an experiment, right? Stick your toe in the water, try it out. When I started pretty much every business I've started, uh, it's always started out as sort of a trial version, right? A trial balloon. It's not a big investment. It's not a lot of time. We'll sort of try it and see how it works. And there are some businesses that can't be done that way. But if you can, I would say modify your business model or whatever it takes so that you can at least sort of test it out and see if it's something you like because 
frequently you'll find that it's a real binary thing. You either love it, this is great, this is working, or wow, this really sucks. I don't want to do this for the rest of my <laughs> life. And you want to find that out early. So, you know, the fail fast thing and all that, I think that's that's vital. And most entrepreneurs that I've known tend to postpone doing that or pro really procrastinate trying something out. You know, hey, what the heck, get out there like you did with your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> now, what's the best way to follow you in case we want to know more about Ken Arnold or like the good projects that you're doing right now? Well, one of the things you can do is find me on LinkedIn, you know, Ken Arnold uh, on LinkedIn. You can also find me, uh, I have a Twitter handle, TechnoKen, T-E-C-H-N-O-K-E-N. Um, and you can always find me uh, at the university or at my company. Uh, my email address is Ken15, K-E-N-1-5 at ht.com. I use the last two digits of the year as part of my email, so the spam falls off every year. Uh, so no, next smart. year it'll be Ken 16 and in January and so on. Another life hack? Yes, another yeah. life hack, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again for being a guest on my show. We appreciate your time and wisdom. But here at Startup Life Hacks, we have a saying to help motivate our listeners who are on this entrepreneur journey, that it's okay to fail and it's okay to struggle. So let's close by reminding Hacker Nation what our motto is and say it with extreme enthusiasm. Stay positive and keep grinding. Thank you so much for joining me today on Startup Life Hacks. To see how to get in touch with Ken, as well as the tools and books he recommended, navigate over to our show notes page at startuplifehacks.com. But before we close, I'd like to go over some key takeaways and lessons learned from this interview. Mentorship is a key component to success. You may think you know everything, but having that person who has been where you want to be experience hardships that you can avoid is invaluable. Remember, you don't know what you don't know, and having a mentor can help bridge that gap of uncertainty. Let me know what you think about this comment, what it means to you, and if you like what we're doing, don't forget to subscribe to get updates on each new show we publish. We showcase a startup founder every week, and who knows, maybe you can one day be a guest on my show in the near future. And for more inspiration, go to startuplifehacks.com. And as always, stay positive and keep grinding.